Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's over there. Chandler's over Chuck's shoulder in the window. Creepy. Everything's all weird. I'm hot and you're cold. Uh, yeah, I'm cold. One of us is Mars and one of us is Venus. <laughs> Isn't that a book? Chuck yeah. is from Mars, Josh is from Venus. <laughs> it is. It's a bestseller in the, uh, the podcast co-host uh, segment of Barnes & Noble. Are those still around? Yeah, they got like three books. <laughs> in three stores. That one, Click and Clack, by the way, R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Legend. Yeah. Man, that was a sad one. Was he Click or Clack? Uh, you know, I always got that confused. Um, it was wa- Tom, right? I want to say Click, but... Um, but it was Tom who died. Yeah. And his younger brother Ray is still around. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah. That was a great show, man. Yeah, my house was off to NPR for, like, immediately, like, lowering the flag and yeah. making a big deal out of it. I mean, like, it was cool. Yeah. He certainly taught us a thing or two. They did about just... Everything we know. Kind of being natural goofs. <laughs> yeah. Leaving in everything. Exactly. So hats off to you, sir. So, Chuck, moving along to terraforming. Yes. Um, did you know that a, uh, a recent study found that even if we instituted a global one-child policy, like China, yeah, but global, sure, by 2100, which is less than 100 years away now, yeah, um, it's like 85 years away. That's not that far. No. We'd be able to keep the population at about current levels. A lot of people would say the current level is too much as it is. Yeah. But if we didn't do anything and continued on this pace of growth, we'd hit about 12 billion people by 2100. Yeah. That is a ton of people. It's a lot of folks. There's a, it's a lot of stretch on resources for agriculture. Yeah. For fuel, energy, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's caused a lot of people, numbers like this, studies like this, has caused a lot of people to say, um, how are we going to support all of these people? Yeah. Did you know a lot of people poo-poo that notion? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, you told me that. that. I had no idea. When I did that little video on overpopulation, a lot of people were like, this is not a problem. This is a conspiracy. Right. There's, like, a, really? there's, a, there's a definite division between camps. There's the gloom and doom camp yeah. who say, like, we're screwed. Sure. And then there's the other camp who says... We'll always technologically advance our way out of trouble like this, right? right sure. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't know what the point was. I think there's just a, there's a camp that says mm-hmm. overpopulation is not an issue, yeah. like people say it is. Well, I think like if you people redistributed people, yeah, uh, it's possible that that could alleviate overpopulation if it is a thing. Yeah, but I think most people, I can't even say that. Some people would say that. Agriculture has what's called a carrying capacity. And we've talked about Malthus before um, and that we are possibly stretching it right now. Sure. Um, So a lot of people, the ones who do believe in the overpopulation problem, are starting to look to the stars and saying, hey, man, let's figure out how to exploit other planets, too. 
Yeah. So the human race can survive. Isn't that what Interstellar is about? That new movie? Yeah. And, and it was totally, I didn't think like, oh, Interstellar, this will be timely. Like the two just happened to coincide. Is it about terraforming or is it just like, <laughs> hey, go find a place that's hospitable? Well, according to what Michael Caine says in the preview, <laughs> it's about just going to find a, a hospitable planet, which is a search that is currently underway and has been for a while through NASA's Kepler um, Observatory. Yeah. They've been looking for exoplanets, and supposedly, right now, they have there are eighteen hundred and fifty four confirmed exoplanets, forty one hundred and seventy three unconfirmed, and all of them are between ten light years and twenty five thousand light years from Earth. Pretty far. It is right now. It's it's prohibitively far. Yeah, but there are planets out there that exist in what's called the Goldilocks zone, which is they orbit a star. And they're just far enough away from the star that they're not going to burn to a crisp. Right. But they're not so far away that you're going to freeze to death. Hence the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. Oh, gotcha. You got it? That's so cute. So that's one thing we could do. We could go find a planet that's like ready made for us to live on. Yeah. If, if I doubt that exists, though. Yeah, and plus, even if we did find it, like I said, the closest exoplanet that we know of, I think, is about 10 light years away. Yeah. That means it would take... A photon, which travels at the speed of light, yeah. 10 years to get there. We can't travel anywhere near the speed of no. light, so it might as well not exist. We're not photons. So all, no, we're not. So alternately, uh, a lot of people are proposing to take a planet or a moon or a asteroid or something and turn it into something habitable for us. And that's terraforming. Yeah. Find a nice little fixer upper planet, <laughs> go in there and flip it and move humanity there mm-hmm. to ruin it. Maybe have a meltdown in front of the cameras. Yeah. Uh, make a couple of stupid things, uh, cliffhangers. Sure. Boom. You've got yourself a series. That's right. Uh, terraforming. We did a short video about this once, about a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. uh, where we explained it in 60 seconds. <laughs> we should just try that again. No. Not just press happen. play and sit back. We also did one about lunar, building a lunar base. Yeah, sure. I almost said a lunar base on the moon, but that's redundant. Yeah. Uh, and that's another idea is, well, we could just build lunar bases and stuff I like that. I think Russia is doing that, right? They announced uh, in May or June. They want to build a like habitable yeah. base up there, right? They plan to spend several hundred million dollars and put it on the moon and just start mining the moon. They want to get a jump on the rest of humanity, and it's pretty smart. Yeah. But building a lunar base or building a base anywhere, a floating city on Venus or anything like that, that's not terraforming. That's building a base somewhere or a floating city somewhere. Yeah, we're talking about changing the atmosphere of a planet. <laughs> yes. And more. Yeah, which requires a substantial amount of energy, a lot of foresight, and and a tremendous amount of patience. And money. Yeah, I am money. Yeah. But I mean, if, if you take money and the amount of time, I would say the amount of time is more depressing than the amount of money you're going to have to sink into it. Because what we're talking about is stuff that's not going to take place until millennia have passed. Yeah, there's all sorts of ranges of how long it might take to <clears throat> terraform a planet. Right. Uh, from a thousand years to 20,000 years. Right. I saw uh, 40,000. Yeah. For Mars, to for us to be able to go to Mars and take off a helmet and be like, oh, uh. right. Michio Kaku has a very cheap idea. 
Have you ever seen his little short videos? No. He explains it in 60 seconds. What is he, uh, what, what's his idea? He's like, uh, you know, there's lots of CO2 under the surface and all we have to do is heat that up a little bit and jumpstart the process. Yeah. And then it creates a, uh, what he called a catalytic effect and it just sort of sustains itself. Well, it let's just talk needs about a jump that. Start. Yeah. So that's called, what he's talking about is called the standard paradigm. Yeah. That Mars has enough CO2 on the planet that if, like he says, you can just melt it. It will create an atmosphere that traps heat. Yeah. You know, we have a problem with CO2 on this planet, sort which of a, is another reason yeah. people say we need to go find another planet and create a greenhouse effect. And that will trap heat, which yeah. will melt more CO2 and more and more. And it will just create this cycle. Do there what we don't want to do here. Exactly. Yeah. Jumpstart it. Let's let's talk about Mars, man. You got some time to, to rap about Mars and and why Mars is frequently pointed to as an ideal locale for terraforming. Yeah, if you listen to our April episode on Mars, then you know a lot about Mars. Um, but we're going to recap some of it. Uh, Mars is a very cold, dry, dusty place now. Yeah. But it used to be wet and warm, and a lot more like Earth than uh, a lot of surrounding planets. So they yeah. think if we can just get it back to that state. Yeah then we've got a good start. Probably the key to Mars, more than anything else, that makes it a uh, the likeliest candidate for terraforming is that the Martian day is 23.7 hours, I think. It's almost exactly like Earth's day, right? Oh, is it getting shorter? Or no, 24.7 hours. I'm sorry. 24 hours and 37 minutes? Something, yes. Yeah. 0. 0.7 is 37 minutes, isn't it? <laughs> sure, I just wanted to give it a relatable... So it's angle. close. Yeah. It's it's very close yeah. to the Earth Day. Um, and that indicates that it spins. So if Mars is already spinning, it has a huge leg up over the competition in the terraforming contest. Yes. So many, many years ago, Mars was wet. Uh, there was volcanic activity, and it was getting bombarded by asteroids. That's right. That did two things, Chuck, two huge things for Mars. One, these asteroids were bringing in gases or compounds that Mars needed to have an atmosphere, right? It was supplying the planet with it. And then the volcanic activity was taking these these compounds and elements that were locked into rock and stuff like that and recycling them back into the atmosphere, which was sustaining the atmosphere, right? Yeah, which was great as long as that was going on. But once those volcanoes stopped... And it was lousy with volcanoes. Right. Once they, they stopped doing their recycling gig, uh, it basically absorbed all that stuff and locked it in the, the, the planet. Yeah, the same thing would happen here, apparently. Like, if we didn't have volcanic activity, um, it, what volcanoes do, one of the things they perform is atmospheric recycling, which is taking this stuff that you normally have in the atmosphere that's been absorbed by, by the soil or yeah. by rock – and boiling it, melting the rock, and spewing it out as a gas back in the atmosphere. And like you said, when Mars stopped doing that, it the recycling process stopped, and all of a sudden you just had a static atmosphere that slowly was stripped away. That's right. Another part of the problem was uh, Mars cooled at the core, and that means it lost its magnetic field, so the upper atmosphere was uh, not being held in place any longer by the magnetosphere. Yeah. So the solar winds were just stripping it away. And all of a sudden, Mars had this very thin atmosphere that wasn't that couldn't trap heat any longer. And the whole planet, like you said, got really dry and really cold like we know it today. That's right. And uh, completely uninhabitable. Um, 
A couple of other things Mars doesn't have going for it um, is it's not very close. Uh, it's, what, like six months away to get there? Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I think it's like a six-month trip to get to Mars. Uh, and that's a long way to go if you want to make regular trips. Just it's, sure. it's cost prohibitive. Yes, but compared to the moon, which you can get to like lickety split. Yeah, that's like a weekender. Six months is, that's pretty distant. Sure. Um, but the fact again, the fact that Mars has this history of, um, being able to hold an atmosphere and surface water, two huge factors in, in a habitable planet. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, uh, there's stuff that's necessary for life, like CO2 and things like that, trapped on the planet already in a frozen form, really just kind of is a is a bright flashing neon sign to people saying, hey, man, come terraform me. That's right. And we'll talk about some of the steps that you have to take to terraform a planet like Mars right after this. Okay, so... Mars is a good, uh, it's a good, nice old house that has good bones. Oh, yeah, it's a great analogy. And we want to restore it to its former moist, wet glory, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds really gross. Some people can't even hear the word moist, you know? Yeah. Yep. Moist. There's moist. a whole, it's <laughs> like a, yeah. I don't mind it. Uh, so Michio Kaku is, has the right idea. There are polar ice caps on Mars. Uh, which have a lot of CO2, and if you jumpstart those and start to melt them, let's say with solar reflective mirrors, yeah. bounce that sun over there that way, uh, that might be a good way to get things started. Right. And it's not going to take too terribly much energy um, to melt those that sequestered CO2, because um, carbon dioxide, basically what those polar ice caps are, is dry ice. Like Mars has dry ice all over it. That's from the atmosphere that was frozen, right? That's right. And um, dry ice sublimates at 100 and negative 109 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So if you can just direct some mirrors at it and just raise it to that temperature, all, that CO2 is going to go from ice and vaporize into gas, and it's going to float up and hang in that thin atmosphere. And like we said, once you have that CO2 in that thin atmosphere, you've just started this chain reaction that's going to create a cycle where the planet gets warmer and warmer, and the more and more CO2 sublimates yep. and joins the atmosphere, and you have a runaway greenhouse effect. And apparently, the at the peak, the calculations of the amount of CO2 on Mars uh, is says that you would have a surface temperature of about 158 degrees Fahrenheit. That's great. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> hot, but yeah. that means water can be sustained. Uh -huh. um, that means that with that atmosphere, the air pressure will be increased because right now the air pressure on Mars is pretty low, too. I think it's about 1% of sea level here on Earth. Yeah. Which is another challenge. Yeah. Well, maybe once it's that hot, we can introduce uh, hyperthermophiles because... And then we'll get to Venus, but that's one of the ideas for Venus. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, is you want, you can't just plop humans down immediately. What, what you're going to have to start with is some basic form of life, some kind of bacteria, perhaps, right. that just starts doing its thing and, uh, chowing down on CO2 and, and making oxygen. And, uh, pretty soon, like many thousands <laughs> of years later, um, humans might be able to live there. Right. And one of the, that's that's almost like the intermediate step. So the first step is to 
get an atmosphere back on Mars. And to get an atmosphere back on Mars, you take Michio Kaku's mirrors and melt the polar ice I don't ice think caps. they were his mirrors, but yeah. Right. It's just nice to say his name sometimes. Sure. Uh, and you melt the polar ice caps of dry ice and you create this atmosphere and you allow water to, to melt onto the surface. And then you add something like, I think the likeliest candidate is cyanobacteria, which is incorrectly referred to as blue-green algae. Who says that? Who says what? Blue-green algae. That's the other term for it. Oh, really? But it's not an algae. It's like a protozoan, I think, or something. Or it's a prokaryote, not a eukaryote, like algae. Gotcha. Man, I feel nerdy right now. It's the oldest fossil on Earth. I mean, that's kind of where it all began. Right. That's what gave Earth its oxygen. So we're saying, hey, why not try the same thing on Mars? Yeah. Got a bunch of CO2 on Mars, a runaway greenhouse effect? Well, it just so happens that cyanobacteria eats CO2. And not only does it eat CO2, it it converts that stuff into oxygen as a waste product. So all of a sudden, you have something, a living organism on Mars that's converting the atmosphere into something breathable for us humans here on Earth. The problem is is you have to have water present for cyanobacteria to live. But you're going to have that water because you've melted the ice caps. You've melted the ice caps to get the CO2 released, which is like negative 109. You need to raise the temperature to at least 32 degrees to start melting the water which requires even more energy. Where are you going to yeah. get that? Well, you're not going to introduce any cyanobacteria until you have that water. Like, that's the first goal. You it, can't have life without water. Exactly. But once you do get the water going, which, again, you could use orbital mirrors, but you just have to concentrate them a little more to reflect more energy into a tighter spot. Sure. Um, you got the cyanobacteria. It's chomping away at the CO2. It's producing oxygen. Some conservative estimates that I've seen are once you have the oceans or the surface water on Mars, which staggeringly to me, we could do in a couple hundred years, supposedly. Yeah. That's nuts, man. Think about that. Like Mars could be turned from a desert into a place with surface water in a couple hundred years. Yeah. That's not that far away. It's not. But after that, it would take about 40,000 years for enough oxygen to be introduced in the atmosphere for a human to possibly walk around on Mars. Yeah, this is why it's so like far-fetched to me. Well, It's science fiction. It, it is far-fetched, but if you take a long view of yeah. humanity and say, yeah, I mean, there's no reason. What was it, man, in the extinction episode? How long does the average species last? Wasn't it like 10 million years? I don't know. Well, say it is even 1 million years. That means humans will be around, supposedly. I'd be surprised. It well beyond 40,000 years. So we need to be thinking like in, in these terms because there's no way Earth's going to last another 40,000 years for us. Yeah. Unless we just radically re-engineer ourselves. Yeah. I, I'm a, I get, I don't, I never thought of myself as a doom and gloomer, but I must be because I don't, I don't know if humans will be around in 40,000 years. I guess we'll see. Yeah. All right. We won't see, but, <laughs> but I mean, technically, it, it should only take uh, an existential, existential catastrophe to get rid of humans. Like, we shouldn't just necessarily die off as a species. It, it, sh- it, it should take something like a physics experiment gone awry. Yeah. Or a nuclear war. Sure. Or biochemical attack. Something like that. Yeah. Man will do it. Yes. It would be a self-injury probably. Yeah. Suicide. 
I guess. Well, not suicide. Murder. (laughs) Murder humanity. Yeah. So then there's two other things. And there's a guy named Martin Fogg who wrote a book called Terraforming, Engineering Planetary Environments. And he basically laid out what you have to do to get Mars going. Um, And again, Mars is the easiest one to do because it has that planetary rotation already. Yeah. But additionally, there's two other things you have to handle. One is um, the atmospheric pressure. So apparently, even at best, Mars would um, it be a lot like existing on a mountaintop here on Earth. Like the sure. air would be thin. You'd be like living on the top of Mount Everest. You'd have kind to, of. You'd have to bring your own oxygen. You would. So like. But maybe Tibetans and Ethiopian Highlanders would make like great early inhabitants of, you know, a terraformed Mars because they're already used to that kind of thing. Sherpa. Exactly. The other thing is, is you need nitrogen. Nitrogen is vital to life and the atmosphere. Yeah, and there's not much nitrogen on Mars. No. So they're saying, well, then all you have to do is start directing comets, ammonia-based ice steroids, I think is what they call them. Yeah, because I don't know if everyone knows this. Comets are, uh, I think one of the articles likened it to giant snowballs. Mm-hmm. And if you sent a comet and exploded it before it hit the planet, uh, it, in theory, would send ice everywhere. Yeah. Which would be pretty cool, but you need a <laughs> lot of comets. You you would. It's not just like one comet and you're done. No, one and done doesn't apply to terraforming. And we have to figure out how to steer these comets that way. And Which apparently is not, I mean, using um, astrophysics, I guess, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility no, no, no. It's not to out steer of the realm. a comet and then hit it with a, a nuclear device to blow it up so that it explodes into shards and then rains down on Mars. A lot of things could go wrong, though. It, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fraught with complications. Steering comets. But it is a viable way to introduce nitrogen to Mars, and it it should ideally stick around, especially once you have an atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so that's Mars. It's probably the way we're going to go. Keep an eye out, because in a couple of centuries, there'll probably be some seas on Mars. Yeah, and I think that guy that you mentioned, too, says even if we do manage to do this, it's going to be a constant process of reintroducing uh, these these elements, these volatile elements, to keep that atmosphere going. I don't I don't know if... If Michio Kaku was right, if it would ever like self-sustain, well, it could if you do that standard paradigm of creating a runaway greenhouse effect. Yeah, what Martin Fogg is saying is, why would you want to do that? Because then you have a, a greenhouse effect well, that you have to deal what with. What I was wondering, yeah, then you have to rein that in. Exactly. Yeah, he he takes a, a longer view of just slowly introducing stuff again and again to sl- to to create this Martian atmosphere over a longer period. But um, in a more uh, granular way. Right, right. Like more more directed than just creating a runaway greenhouse effect. That makes more sense. Yeah. A little more focused. Right. Yeah. So we'll talk about some of Mars's rivals for the terraforming game uh, right after this. Stuff you should Stuff you should so I guess I'm Venus since I'm always hot. Uh, because Venus is a very hot place. It's um, very unlike Mars, but some people say Venus has a few things going for it. Namely, it's super close. It's yeah. The closest planet to us. Yeah. Uh, we have similar, uh, almost, well, not identical, but very similar size and mass and a very thick atmosphere, uh, just like Earth does. So there's a lot of similarities there. 
Um, but you're sort of working in the opposite direction of Mars is you got to cool Venus down. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And there's lots of wacky ideas on how to do that. Uh, one of which is what would you do if you were hot? Put, put up a big shade. Yeah, like one of those little uh, umbrellas in a tiki drink. Yeah, just a giant one. Yes. Basically, the idea is to block all sunlight from Venus and cool it. Um, and apparently in about 100 years, Venus's atmosphere, uh, which is pretty substantial, like you said, yeah. and almost all CO2 would freeze and fall to the surface. Well, and there's also a lot of sulfuric acid. There is. Yeah. But... Um, this this atmosphere would freeze and create a surface layer. Yeah. Just like on Mars, like how the CO2 is locked in the polar ice caps, it'd be doing the same thing with Venus. Then you'd have to go in and deal with this frozen atmosphere, which is kind of a thing. But you could use it to your advantage, Chuck, because the leg up, like I said, that Mars has over Venus is that the Martian day is about 24 hours long, right? Yeah. Well, the Venusian day is about 160 days long. Yeah, that's which the means problem. It rotates way too slowly for us to be habitable for us. So if you take this atmosphere and you freeze it and you create this frozen hulk of a planet, you can actually make it spin faster if you can blow the atmosphere off into space in a directed manner. Yeah, and uh, actually, in show correction, that's 116 uh, days is the length of their day. I gotcha. 116 <laughs> Earth days, right? Earth days, yeah, yeah, there you go. Not Earth 60, but I think anything over 100, you just call a big problem. Yeah, it's too long. Yeah. So if you can figure out how to blow the atmosphere the now frozen atmosphere off of Venus in the, in the direction that it's already rotating. You could conceivably spin up, speed up the, the rotation of Venus. Yeah. Uh, one of the other problems with Venus is that there's no water. Um, and as everyone knows, like we said, you need water for life. But then we come back to our comet idea of driving these comets and exploding them and creating water that way. Uh, and then the hyperthermiles, which I mentioned, thermophiles, uh-huh. sorry, that I mentioned earlier, are these organisms that can thrive in really hot temperatures. Um, and we're talking really hot. I think the, the surface temperature of Venus is something like 800 degrees Fahrenheit, 872, yeah. which is 467 degrees Celsius. Yeah, the problem is we we haven't found anything on Earth, any hypothermophiles that can handle that kind of temperature and pressure yet, but they think they exist. Yeah, did you mention the pressure of the atmosphere on, on Venus? It's 200 times yeah. the pressure at sea level here on Earth. It's a problem as well. But if you could find a hypo hyperthermophile that could sustain that and ate sulfur. Yeah, and which then, they do, though. Yeah, and then, yeah, because I think some of them are by thermal vents under underwater. Yeah, right? we, we know are, they eat surf, uh, sulfur. We just haven't found any that can sustain that kind of heat and pressure yet. Well, there's only one way to find out, and that's to launch them toward Venus and see what <laughs> happens. Basically infect the, the planet is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so the problem with all of this is, is to to freeze Venus, it's going to require a lot of energy to reflect all, all the light from the surface. Uh, it, to bit the frozen atmosphere out into space is going to require even more. Basically, it would require the amount of energy that the sun puts out in an entire year. That's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy now. But have you ever heard of the Kardashev scale? Sure. So then you know there's type 1, type 2, and type 3 civilizations. And a type 1 civilization uses all of the available energy 
from the star. Yeah. So like all of this energy that hits the earth normally from the sun, if you could harness all that, you'd be a type one civilization. We're yeah. not even there yet. Type two civilization could harness all of the energy at the that's created at the star, not just the stuff that makes it to your planet. Right. And if you could harness that, if you're a type two civilization, you could be doing this kind of terraforming, no problem. No sweat. <laughs> no sweat, man. But I mean, if you think about it, if you have a couple of like leaps forward in understanding, a couple of geniuses are born and live and advance human understanding yeah. over the course of a few generations, you could conceivably hit something like that in a hundred years. Yeah. So I mean, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could be doing stuff like this a hundred, two hundred years from now. Yeah, uh, Venus, another idea they have instead of these huge giant, um, shade sails would be to have a big floating pressurized geodesic sphere city that people basically would use the atmosphere because the atmosphere is okay above the sulfuric acid that is. But, um, that would provide shade Mm -hmm. and then eventually it would cool the planet down enough. Right. Just by creating a a shadow. They'd be simultaneously sucking the CO2 out of the atmosphere and breaking it down into carbon and oxygen as well, supposedly. So it'd be doing like two things at once. Not a bad idea. Yeah, no, no. Sounds efficient. A little more efficient. And apparently if you pressurized um, like a indoor city or something like that, a floating city, and put it into Venus's atmosphere, it would naturally float in the atmosphere. It would stay put. Yeah, I think that was the same for uh, the the uh, solar mirror wouldn't have to be attached to anything either yeah. off, off of Mars. Yeah. I think it would just be held in place by, I think, uh, gravity and uh, what? Solar? Bubblegum. Uh, <laughs> Bubblegum. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, Chuck, there is the moon. Boo. Seems pretty unlikely. The one thing that the moon has going for it is its proximity, basically. Yeah, basically, it's like the moon is close. It's small. So you're not going to have to spend a lot of money getting there, and it's because it's small, you're not going to spend a ton of money fixing it up. It's the budget terraforming idea. I guess the Russians will already be living there mm-hmm. at this point. Um, I don't know if the moon is very viable, though. Well, you'd have to, again, bombard it with something to get it to spin faster, because right now it's days, 28 Earth days, right? Yeah, they said like 100 comets. At least. About the size of Halley's Comet. Yeah, to get it just spinning faster and perhaps knock it off its axis a bit and give it seasons, which yeah. would be nice. Yep. Like we have here on Earth. Man, my money's on Mars. It's got everything you need except for nitrogen. And that you can just deliver however you like. I kind of like the shell idea that you sent along. Uh, Ken Roy, he's an engineer who basically says, why don't we just encase a small planet in a huge shell? Made of Kevlar and steel and dirt. Yeah. And just create like a huge geodesic dome around a planet. I guess the question is, is where are you going to get all that dirt? I don't know. Because that is the, it's, that's an essential ingredient. You is it mostly dirt? You encase it in dirt, then you create an atmosphere between the shell and the dirt. Yeah. Where, where's all that dirt coming from? Adobe. I, I guess. <laughs> a big so. Adobe sphere. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think that's a pretty neat idea. It'd be, you know. I do too. It'd be all artificial. You'd have to have artificial light because you're inside a dome. Right. Um, and apparently it would have like airlocks and stuff to account for like the vacuum. Yeah. I don't know about that though. That sounds like science fiction. He was saying the atmosphere would be just thin enough or gravity would be just light enough so that humans could fly around. (laughs) I swear to God he added that. No, no, no. I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) 
He's like, just to sweeten the pot a little more. Yeah, to make it that much more cool. You'll be able to fly. So, anyway, we'll eventually ruin this planet and need something. Hopefully, we'll have had the foresight to have started terraforming in time. Yeah. Well, they're, they're already working on it. Are they? Well, I know I mean, people are talking about it. Proposing ideas, theoretical ideas. I don't think they're like building... They should be. The asteroid slinger. They should have started in the 19th century. <laughs> They're building a comet sling in <laughs> Texas yeah. as we speak. Yep. Uh, if you want to know more about terraforming, you can type that word in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for, Chuck, a very special edition, Thanksgiving edition of that's right. We are here to say thanks because it's around Thanksgiving. Because My uh, friend, it is Thanksgiving. Oh, is it Thanksgiving Day? Yes. Well, of course it is. It's Thursday. Uh, unless you're in Canada, and in which case, happy late belated Thanksgiving. Yes. Because they do theirs in like October. Weirdos. I think so too. <laughs> so uh, who do we have to thank? Yeah, I mean, we have, for those of you who've never heard this segment, we have listeners that send us gifts from time to time, and it is always... Very much appreciated mm-hmm. and very nice. Mm-hmm. And so here they are. Yeah. I'm going to start with the second page if you want to start with the first page. Sure. You go ahead, Chuck. Uh, Anthony Savino sent us from his Etsy shop, Swiss Chisel, uh, a lap- laptop and business card holders made out of old wine barrel staves. Yeah, those are nice. And he makes all kinds of stuff um, out of these things. So check out his store, uh, which is Swiss Chisel. Yes. On uh, Etsy. And uh, Matt Perky from EvolveWorkforce.com. Send us some mugs. Matt's aim is to refine drug testing for states where marijuana is legal so he can get an idea of what your intoxication is immediately after something like an accident or whatever. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Well, well states to, legalizing, like if your job, yeah. you know, if you have to get drug tested. This guy's on it. Interesting. EvolveWorkforce.com. Is that where the mug came from? Yes. Okay. I thought that was a hint. <laughs> New York, New York, the band sent us a promo CD, uh, which is terrific. So uh, we always like getting music from our musician friends. So thanks for that. Yep. Uh, Mike Dudek from the clickypost.com, C-L-I-C-K-Y-P-O-S-T, sent us cube pen holders of his own making. Uh, he also sent us some awesome Pilot Metropolitan fountain pens and Rhodia dot pads. Mike is a pen person, and he wanted to share his uh, his passion with us. So thank you very much, Mike. All right, we have an anonymous gift. Uh, someone sent us a postcard from the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, along with the junior federal agent badges oh, yeah. for, for all three of us. Yeah. And I have mine in my wallet. Yep. You really do, don't you? I do. Uh, huge thank you to Chloe, the candy maker, who is also a ghost tour guide, who sent us tons of amazing candy from Mackinac Island, Michigan, where I used to go sometimes as a child, so I was very happy to get this. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. And um, we want to say good luck and safe travels to you and your sister on your world tour, Chloe. Be safe. Uh, big thanks to Annie from Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Nice. Uh, sent us a mega care package for real of Australian treats. Uh, Tim Tams, I mm-hmm. think you love those things, right? Oh, man, I went crazy for this. Thing. And uh, Carmelo Kids uh, were pretty good as well. Uh, Violet Crumbles, Picnic Boost, Hero. There was some weird stuff in there, but it Burger was all rings. good. Man, those Aussies got some crazy candies. Uh, thanks to Andrew Parr for an entire puzzle dedicated to stuff you should know in the World of Puzzles Winter 2014 issue. It was awesome. Oh, boy, this is one of my favorites. Rob Henyon, um from... Uh, sent us those awesome stuff you should know bookends mm-hmm. made from industrial fasteners, and they are 
super cool. They're really heavy and they're awesome. And uh, you can get information at moremetalwelding at gmail.com or moremetal.etsy.com. It's like quality, quality stuff. Yeah, it is. Uh, Kevin Poloquin from kevinpoloquin.com. That's K-E-V-I-N-P-E-L-O-Q-U-I-N. And Rad Dad Tees. I think those are both of his sites. Uh, he gave us an amazing illustration of Steve Zissou from The Life Aquatic looking pensively toward the horizon, which I have up in my cubicle. Oh, I wonder what that was from. That's from Kevin Poloquin. Uh, Lauren and Megan from Chopsticks for Salamanders. They've got a pretty cool cause. They mm-hmm. sent them, uh, sent us stainless steel reusable chopsticks. Uh, and this is a big deal because chopsticks are, honestly, they're kind of a problem. Uh, they, um, sell these to help prevent destruction of forests, um, uh, from those little cheapy wooden ones. Yeah. And they're the same forests where they, where they get these, uh, the wood for these things where salamanders live. And so every year, 60 billion pairs of chopsticks are thrown away, and a lot of salamanders are having their forests, uh, forests and habitats destroyed because of your sushi uh, addictions, <laughs> which I have as well. Yes. So get some of these. You can learn more at chopsticksforsalamanders.org. Nice. Um, we got a postcard. Man, it's been a while since we did this. We got a postcard from uh, one of our announcing the birth of one of our newer fans, Clyde Avery Thomas who was born at 1.58 a.m. on January 16th, 2014 in Traverse City, Michigan. I thought you said he was like six. <laughs> yeah, by now he probably is, but um, he most likely came out a little frostbitten because it's cold up there. But congratulations to Andrew and Janelle Thomas on the birth of your son. Yeah, and happy first birthday pretty soon. Pretty soon. Uh, Mike and Cassidy Lord from Athens, Georgia. Woohoo! Sent us a postcard from Cambodia um, while in Borneo. <laughs> I know. Wrap your mind around that. Interesting. Uh, Sarah Austin gave us a very chic and rugged handmade leather card holder wallets, which are pretty awesome. Very nice. Uh, Rachel Crandall for the line drawing of Stuff You Should Know, written in Gallifreyan. It's the language, apparently, that uh, Time Lords and Doctor Who of the Time Lords. Right. So I'm not a Doctor Who fan, but I appreciated the gift. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, Julie from Austin, Texas sent us a postcard from the Shed Aquarium in beautiful Chicago, Illinois. Thank you, Julie. Oh, boy. Lois Olson. This is my favorite gift I've gotten. Very simple, but awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mini quilts. Yeah. They are, it's basically a little tiny, not a tiny, it's a small placemat that you use in place of a coaster. Right. It's mug big, rugs. Bigger than a coaster, smaller than a placemat. Yeah, a little rectangular thing. And I often at dinner will have like... Maybe a beer, maybe a glass of water, right. maybe a cup of coffee. Shot of whiskey. And I put everything down on my little mug rug. Mm-hmm. And if anything spills, it soaks it up. It's better than a coaster. And it doesn't stick like a coaster. It's like, it's going to revolutionize the coaster industry. <laughs> nice. I love them. So thank you, Lois Olson, for that. Uh, thank you to Brett Arnold, who won our horror fiction contest, if you'll remember. He sent us a copy of his book, Avalon, and you can get Avalon on Amazon.com. And then lastly for this one, um, we want to thank Joe and Linda Hecht for sending us tons of stuff, including customized Stuff You Should Know mugs uh, with hints to um, podcast topics that they'd like to hear stuff about. They put them on a mug and have them made and send them to us. Yeah, cool they, mugs. They sent us a copy of the DVD American Amazon. They gave us 10 bucks to watch it. Oh, <laughs> man. So, uh, they're, they're the best. They are very great people. So thank you to everybody. And we still have more people to thank left um, eventually. Yeah, that's, this is part one. Right. But uh, we are grateful for each and every one of you and all of you listeners out there, whether you send us stuff or not. We're thankful to all of you, and we hope you're having a wonderful holiday no matter where you are in the world. Agreed. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 